Good morning. Welcome to all of you and welcome Abigail to our team here. We're so glad to have you and John and the family. This morning, we continue in our sermon series, our journey through Paul's letter to the Philippians. So if you've got a Bible with you or in front of you, turn with me to chapter 3. We'll be focusing our attention today on those verses that Betty read for us, verses 17 through uh, to chapter 4, verse 1. I think in most pew Bibles, we're on page 981 and then pretty quickly to 982. Last week, if you were with us or if you caught us online, we were given a portrait of pursuit, uh, a picture of how to live our lives, how to be a church, a people who are in one brushstroke of the portrait, forgetting all that lies behind us, and then in the second brushstroke, straining forwards to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And what we see this morning as we continue through to the end of this chapter, is that as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we look at him, he transforms how we see. He transforms our entire perspective. When Jesus is who we see, Jesus changes how we see. And he does this by way of illumination. We heard earlier this year, if you were here with us on the first Sunday of the year, we looked at John's prologue, John chapter 1. And in that prologue, in verse 4, John tells us that Jesus is the life and the light of men. And so Paul's exhortation to the church this morning in these verses is yet another example, another example of how Jesus is light for us. He transforms how we see. This is gospel illumination. The last thing that we need in the church is also the last thing the world needs from the church, and that would be this. A bunch of people walking around thinking what they think, seeing things the way they see things, and existing in a perpetual echo chamber which reinforces the way they think and reinforces the way they see things. What if, instead of the church being yet another one of those echo chambers, filled with, well, here's what I think, here's the way I see it, the church was filled with a lot of, here's what Jesus thinks. Here's the way Jesus sees it. What we need in the church is also what the world needs from the church, and that is to think and see in the light of the gospel as Jesus sees, as he wants us to see. This is gospel illumination. And that's what we're given in our text this morning. It was C.S. Lewis who famously wrote this, quote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I think that's really helpful. And we would be a lot better off then, a lot more useful as a people, as a church, as the church, if we got that and if we lived that. And so it's for that purpose we look at these six verses today, asking for gospel illumination, that we wouldn't just see it, but so that by it we would see everything. And we're given that illumination today in three key directions where we often get it wrong. It's almost like the Bible knows us. 
It's almost like God knows our frame and like he knows where we're prone to get it wrong. And so that's what we have here this morning is gospel illumination in three directions where we often get it wrong. And that first direction is inside the church, how we are to look towards Christians. Towards Christians, the gospel calls us to imitate those who are headed for Jesus. Just one verse here to begin with. Verse 17, Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk to, according to the example you have in us. Imitate those who are headed for Jesus. To uh, get a hold of what Paul is saying here, we have to remember where we left off last week. Paul had given us this example of an athlete, a runner straining forward to Jesus, kind of bent over with a focused gaze on Jesus, forgetting everything else that lies behind. It's all rubbish, counting it all as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, of being found in Jesus. A Christian who knows they have been grasped by Jesus is someone who wants to grasp Jesus. They fix their eyes on him and they pursue him. And so God, for us this morning, through his word in Philippians, has sort of a a double exhortation for us. Yes, be that kind of Christian, focused on Jesus, eyes fixed on him, forgetting all that lies behind. Yes, run after him, but also run after other Christians who are also running after him. Pursue other Christians who are also pursuing Jesus. Paul's invitation, we, we see this this morning, for the church in Philippi or for us to imitate him is not because, it, not because he has it all figured out. Raise your hand if you think you have it all figured out this morning. Okay. I see that hand. Just kidding. It's precisely the opposite. Paul's invitation for the church in Philippi to imitate him is because he doesn't have it all figured out. He only has one thing figured out, and it's this. The only thing it's all about is being all about Jesus. And so because Paul knows that one thing, he says, imitate me in that. Pursue me as I pursue. Pursue me as I pursue. In other words, Paul is saying at its best, at its simplest, at its most beautiful, the church is a mutual Jesus-pursuing society. We're all pursuing Jesus together, and we run after each other as we run after him. I I bet most of you this morning can think of someone in your life who has served this role for you, Uh, a family member, a friend, a teacher, a roommate, someone you knew, either up close or from afar, who you imitated, and you ran after them as they ran after Jesus. That was God's grace. That is God's grace in your life, to put people in our lives like that. Without this illumination that we're given this morning about how to see each other in the church, Christians can get into the wrong mindset that the goal of the Christian life on this earth is arriving. That the the purpose or the goal of the Christian walk is to arrive at a particular place on this earth. And when we see uh, it through this lens, it sort of means that we should avoid people like that. People who think they have arrived on this earth. We never arrive on this earth. We only arrive in heaven. On this earth, we pursue Jesus. We then pursue those who are pursuing him. I think we have an example of this every week in our Anglican liturgy. Our liturgy provides for us what I think is sort of a 
directional illustration of this point. And it's that when it's time to come to the Lord's table, it's time to receive again uh, the grace of Jesus, the body and blood of Jesus. We follow the person in front of us. We get up and we follow the example of the person in front of us as we come to kneel and receive again. And if for some reason the person in front of us were to go and do something like get in their car and go get an oil change, uh, we wouldn't follow that person. But we follow one another as we come to pursue Jesus. Strain after people who are straining after Jesus. Pursue other people who are pursuing Jesus. It's how we're to see one another in the church. This is seeing one another in the light of the gospel. And this protects us then from all kinds of dysfunctions in the church. As I thought about this, I can think of at least 10 church dysfunctions this will protect us against if we just pursue one another as we pursue Jesus. And here's 10 of them. One, jealousy of other Christians. Two, competition with other Christians. Three, judgment of other Christians. Four, stagnancy in our spiritual walk. Five, arrogance in our spiritual walk. Six, thinking we don't need the church. Seven, thinking we don't have anywhere to look. Eight, getting into generational silos. Nine, getting into a me and Jesus silo. Ten, not seeing our brothers and sisters in Christ as pointers to Christ. I was born with pretty bad eyes, pretty bad vision, and I spent most of my life uh, struggling with that until several years ago. A wonderful Christian eye doctor, surgeon, and his team saved my eyes, different surgeries and procedures, and now they're in pretty good shape. But I still don't love nighttime driving. And I especially don't love nighttime driving when it's raining. Uh, Many of you are probably like this. I especially don't love it when I don't know where I am and I can't see the lines on the road. But what a difference it makes for me. In that moment, you probably know this, when there's at least a car in front of me, And I can follow that car's brake lights. Paul is saying, imitate those who are pursuing Jesus. Follow their brake lights. Follow their brake lights. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. That's our posture towards Christians in the church. And now Paul transitions to our posture towards the lost. And we see this, the gospel calls us to weep for those who are headed for destruction. Verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Again, Paul wants to address us. God wants to address us here because we often get it wrong here as Christians. When we look at the world, when we look at the lost, and we can get it so wrong that we work against ourselves because then we not only fail to give the good news, but we fail to give it because we have have failed to get it. We look now in the direction towards the lost with gospel illumination. And the first thing we see is what lostness is. What lostness is. And Paul uses very strong language here. There's a seriousness with which he writes about the lost, but there's also a sadness uh, with which he writes. He says that 
people walk as enemies of the cross. What he means by this is that the, the cross that stands tall and is lifted high to pronounce God's salvation, salvation from your sins, because these lost ones are walking away from that salvation, that same cross stands to pronounce judgment upon their sins. This is why verse 19 begins by saying where that journey away from the cross ends. He says the end is destruction. It's tragic. Further, more about lostness, it's, it's, it's nothing more than having oneself as one's highest authority. We see this in verse 19. Their God is their belly. Their glory, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Their God is their belly. That's an interesting phrase. We don't hear that very often. Their God is their belly. What does that mean? It's describing a person who is their own highest authority. Their belly in scripture, the seat of their desires, of their wants, the the driving force of their longings, that becomes their God, their authority. And they glory in it, they boast in it, they're blind, they're on their own. Paul says they set their mind on earthly things. This is what lostness is in the light of the gospel, but here's now how we get lostness wrong if we're not looking at it by way of gospel illumination. We can tend to forget that we ourselves should be quite familiar with that description of lostness. We should be quite familiar of it, of someone walking away from the cross, of someone living in darkness and sin or as one's own authority, because this is all of our stories. It's all of our stories. It describes all of us, all of us outside of Christ before we are saved. Remember the offense of of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world. And you, and you, and you. Then, of course, the gospel breaks through in Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. So if we really get this then, then when we look in the direction of the lost, we never start with, and they, and those lost people. We always start the posture of our hearts with the offense of Ephesians 2, and you, and me, and I, but God. There's the difference of gospel illumination towards the lost. We know that description. Because that's our description outside of Christ. And so our posture is not, and they, it's, and me, but God, but God. This should give us hearts of compassion then as the church, hearts of compassion. And I think that's part of the reason why Paul, we see this, looks at the lost through tears. He weeps for the lost. Halfway through verse 18, Paul says, I tell you, even with tears, We see this here, that then a person who gets the gospel can give the gospel to the lost with tears because we know that description. It gives us compassion for them. Remember uh, also this compassion of Jesus from the cross. Jesus looks at at the lost. He looks at those who have crucified him. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. He wept for the lost. And I wonder what an impact it had on Paul 
that he was there watching as Stephen was executed. Remember, Acts tells us he approved of it. He had probably arranged it. He was delighting in it. He was very happy to see Stephen being executed. And he's standing off in the distance watching this happen, and he hears Stephen's last words. Acts chapter 7, verse 60, Stephen's final words, looking at those who are about to kill him, looking at the lost, Stephen cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So, gospel illumination gives us gospel hearts that look and act remarkably similar to Jesus' heart. See how Stephen's heart, that his execution, was remarkably similar to Jesus's. So we pray that God would help us and keep us from becoming arrogant, uptight, boastful Christians who look upon the lost with any kind of derision or judgment or boasting. We want God to help us be a people in a church who look upon the lost with tears, tears of compassion. We Christians should be the most humble people of all. We'll sing it later today. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? The writer of that hymn is perplexed. Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued amazing love? How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? How can it be? So to recap, so far, these Key directions for us, gospel illumination towards Christians. We imitate those who are headed for Jesus. Towards the lost, the gospel calls us to weep. Weep for those who are headed for destruction. And now, as chapter 3 draws to a close, towards heaven. Towards heaven. Gospel gives us hope that the end is just the beginning. Look with me at verse 20. Paul writes, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Why does Paul shift so suddenly here? He's been talking to Christians about how to look at Christians. He's been talking to Christians about how to look at the lost. And now he shifts talking about Jesus' return and to heaven. He shifts Because it's the certain light of a certain Savior who will certainly return and who will subject all things to his certain power that is to illuminate everything for us. Remember that C.S. Lewis quote that it's, it's not just that we see it, but it's by it, the gospel, the light of Jesus that we see everything. And this illumines everything for us. I find it a little interesting on a on a little textual level here, that there's a lot of evidence that what happens to Paul in this verse, when we get to verse 20, is the same thing that happened to him earlier in chapter 2, which is he breaks into a song that he's actually quoting for us here, an ancient Christian hymn. It's sort of like he can't help himself. He, he can't control himself. Uh, he can talk to the church about being the church, talk to the church about looking at the loss with tears in his eyes, and then he has to make sure he's got his eyes centered on Jesus again before he goes any further. He has to make sure his eyes are on the prize again. I wish I knew the melody to this. I wish I knew whether it was fast or slow or something. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in our language, it's kind of kept kind of a cadence to it, right? 
who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then I bet they did a modulation and they repeated it 18 times. (laughs) What do you know? Paul is saying the same things again. It's how he started chapter 3. It's a joy to say the same things to you. Now he's saying it, but he's quoting a song. Pursue those who pursue Jesus, yes, 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 good direction. Weep for the lost, yes, that's a good direction. But you want to know the best direction of all? You want some gospel illumination? Let me quote this song to you, Paul says. He wants to gather all Christians, all of us, shoulder to shoulder, many different people and nations and tribes and tongues, many different stories, many different experiences, walking through many different layers of fogginess, And he wants all of humanity, all Christians to stand and fix their eyes on one focal point, one Savior, Jesus Christ. We look at the world, amen, preach it, amen. We look at the world, we wonder what in the world to make of the world. We weep for the lost, and then we come to church again. We get out of bed on a rainy morning, come to church again. And the preacher climbs up in the pulpit again. And he or she opens God's word again. And they preach the gospel to themselves again and to the congregation again. And we're reminded of the same things again. We are citizens of heaven. We belong to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, once again, gets really real here. And he gets real about our bodies These bodies of ours that daily feel the effects of the fall. Our bodies that get tired and get sick and get cancer and get injured. Bodies that grow old and die. Paul uses our bodies as the best living, breathing, flesh and bone illustration that he can to remind us of the real promise to come. That the gospel is such good news and offers us such real hope that even these bodies that have worn out or are wearing out are going to be made like Jesus' body. Our ESV translation puts it this way. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. The original language puts it more like this. He will make, I like this, he will make our body of humiliation to be like his body of glory. Starting uh, Easter Sunday, we're going to have a seven-week sermon series just on one chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at what the resurrection of the body of Jesus, what his victory over death means for the resurrection of our bodies and for our victory over death. But that's a few weeks from now. So just for now, Paul drops this little bit A little bit of amazing good news here, which is this. And I will heavily paraphrase, okay? This is the Jamie Brown translation, the JBT. Jesus is going to fix everything, period. Jesus is going to fix everything. Jesus is the ultimate fixer-upper, okay? He's going to fix everything. And Paul is brilliant here. I love this because even in the way he quotes this ancient Christian hymn, He actually purposefully uses language that in those days would have been used to talk about a different savior in Rome. And that savior had power to put Paul in prison. 
And that Savior also had the initials J.C., Julius Caesar. Paul quotes a hymn, and he uses language about a Savior, very familiar language to them in Rome, to point to a greater Savior who's in heaven, who has the power to subject all things to himself, and whose initials J.C. are Jesus Christ. You have Julius Caesar on one hand with his little limited human failing power. You can keep your eyes on him if you want to. Look at Julius Caesar. Look at the power of the world. Look at our failing bodies. Or you can fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, our Savior in heaven who will come. So chapter 4, verse 1, where we end is a final ray of gospel light today. On this cloudy day, God gives us a ray of gospel light once more to hang on to. Verse 1 of chapter 4, therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm thus in the Lord. So if nothing else, have that as your light. Have that as your light this week in whatever direction you look. Hold on to that as your light towards other Christians. If you're looking at them, hold on to that as your light. Towards the lost, hold on to that as your light. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm in Jesus. I will remind you of this next week in case you forget. And you remind me too, okay? Deal? Deal. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we believe in you as we believe that the sun has risen. Lord, help us to see you and help us to see through you. Give us hearts of love and appreciation and pursuing of one another here in this church. Give us eyes of tears for the lost, hearts of compassion. Fix our eyes on our Savior. We ask in his mighty name, amen, amen. Let's stand.